You know, one of my dreams is to someday get a drum roll when I get to preach. And <laughs> Gatorade dump, I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> we have some special guests visiting our family today. Uh, Ivan Garcia and his family are from Chesapeake. He was on my staff just about the entire time I was a pastor at South Norfolk Baptist. Uh, before we moved here, and it's good to have you guys with us. Welcome to Rocky Mountain and to the church. I want you to use your imagination with me for a moment. And this is a, a little bit of a difficult thing. Hopefully you haven't been in this place and you never will be, but I need you to get there in order to, to understand the passage of Scripture I'm going to be speaking from. I want you to imagine you're in a courtroom, and it is a hostile courtroom. Most courtrooms are not known for being friendly environments anyway, but this is a particularly hostile environment. And part of the reason it's a hostile environment is because your best friend was in this courtroom about 40 days before you showed up in the courtroom, and he got a tough verdict. In fact, his verdict was so tough that they condemned him to death. And they know that you are associated with him. And so you've actually been brought into the courtroom because you're associated with your friend. They got that tough verdict just 40 days earlier. And so you stand before the same judge and the same jury and you wait for the verdict. And they ask you to speak. And you're standing there wondering, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? And what in the world is going to happen to me? And you got a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, what is going to happen to you? Because you know what happened to your friend 40 days earlier. That is the exact position that Peter and John found themselves in in the book of Acts chapter 4. They were brought in to a courtroom experience with the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 men who led the nation of Israel and in particular led the religious expression of the nation of Israel. You couldn't get any higher than the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was led by, interestingly enough, a family. There was Annas, who was the high priest... He had been replaced by the Romans, but everybody still in the Jewish community regarded him as the high priest, and he essentially functioned in that capacity. Now, his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was the same guy who condemned Jesus, was acting like the high priest, basically under command from his father-in-law. And then Annas also had about four younger sons, and they also served as priest. So it was very much of a family business, if you will, in the Sanhedrin. And then you've got these 71 guys that are sitting out there. And they sit in a great big semicircle, and they were in a building that was called the building, or the hall, I should say, of hewed stone. Remember that, the hall of hewed stone. So you've got this colossal facility, the hall of hewed stone, semicircle, 71 leaders of Israel sitting in front of you, and then you've got Annas 
Caiaphas, his family looking at you in the face. They condemned Jesus to death about 40 days prior to this. Peter and John have been brought in. They're standing there. What are they going to say? And in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 5, we have the account of what happens here. So if you turn in your Bibles there with me to Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. And as you're turning there, and of course the passage will be on the screen, what precipitated this event is that Peter and John go up to the temple compound in the city of Jerusalem at what's called the hour of prayer, which was around the ninth hour, excuse me, around the noon hour. The Jews would gather every day at noon to pray. And as they arrive at the temple, there is a gentleman sitting outside the temple, and he's sitting there, and he has never walked in his life. He is lame. And he begins to do what he does with everybody that comes by. He begins to ask for money. They didn't have any social welfare system in those days. So he begins to say, could you give me some money? Could you give me some money? And Peter and John look at him and say, listen, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we're going to give you right now. And what we're going to give you is Jesus and the healing power of Jesus. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I want you to stand up and walk. And this man suddenly begins to feel a strength and a vitality in his feet and in his legs that he's never felt before. And he stands up and he can't believe what's happening. He begins to walk for the first time in his life. He begins to leap. He's so excited. And they proceed into the temple. Well, you can imagine what's going on in the temple compound. People are super excited because they've known this guy as a lame guy. Now he's walking, he's leaping, he's shouting. And so the word spreads all over the temple area and into the streets of Jerusalem. And so when the Sanhedrin find out about it, they are not quite as excited. You see, the Sanhedrin and the leadership of Israel had a group of folks in the leadership of Israel called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, hence they did not accept the resurrection of Jesus, and nor did they really accept a lot of the other norms of Christianity that were coming about at that time. And so the Sadducees begin to really look upon the apostles, these first Christian leaders, Peter and John, as agitators and as heretics. And so they say these guys need to be brought before the Sanhedrin and they need to be tried. And so that's where the story opens in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. On the next day there are rulers and elders, and those elders would have been the Sanhedrin, and the scribes, those were sort of the Bible scholars of their day, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas would have been his son-in-law, John, whom we believe was one of his sons, and Alexander. And all were of the high priestly family. So you've got a real good set of family collusion going on here. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power... Or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, notice this next phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good, day, good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along. We have been looking through the book of Acts over the last six weeks at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to look at what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because as Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, a key verse there in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. As they stood there in front of that Sanhedrin and wondered what they were going to say and were they going to have the courage to say it, knowing that what they said may well mean the end of their life as it had for Jesus, they needed a courage beyond what they were able to muster up. And the Spirit of God empowered them with the courage that they needed. Now, I want you to see first in this passage that the Spirit of God empowers us with confidence in Jesus. The reason those disciples said what they said in front of that Sanhedrin was not because they had confidence in themselves. It surely wasn't because they had confidence in the fairness of the Sanhedrin. It was because they had confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice how they identify who Jesus is. Now, the question is put to them in verse 10. Sanhedrin looks at him and says, all right, this guy standing beside you has been healed. We can't argue with that. Everybody knows he was a lame guy. Now he's standing and he's in good shape. So we want to know by what authority this guy has been healed. We want to know by what authority he could stand up. Peter looks at him and he says, I tell you by what authority. It's by the name of Jesus Christ. That's whose authority. Now, in those days, when you used someone's name, it meant that you were speaking in their authority. Or when you injuncted their name into a situation, it meant that their authority in a situation was being called to bear upon it. And what he's saying, what Peter is saying here is, this man was healed by the authority of Jesus Christ. They would have understood that what Peter was saying was, when we walked up to this guy... It wasn't by our authority and our ability he was healed. The authority of Jesus Christ was greater than the authority of the lameness in the man. The authority of Jesus Christ superseded how this man had been all of his life. And it was by the authority of Jesus that this man was healed. That is the authority by which this man was healed. And then Peter goes on in verse 10 to talk about who Jesus is. He says, this is the same Jesus whom you crucified. Notice how personal he gets. You crucified him. That's not a way to win friends and influence people if you're standing in front of the Sanhedrin. To look at him straight in the face and say, you crucified him. Actually, the Romans had crucified Jesus, but they had done it under the influence and to make the Sanhedrin happy. 
But as we saw a few weeks ago, when Peter says you crucified him, he's basically saying not so much you carried out the act, your sin put him on the cross. And folks, all of us shared in the crucifixion because our sin put Jesus on the cross. Notice what Peter says next, though. I love it. He says, verse 10, you crucified him whom God raised from the dead. You crucified him. God's answer to crucifixion was resurrection. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You had the power given by God to crucify him, but God proved that he had greater power than your power, greater power than the religious authorities, greater power than the Roman government. He had the power of resurrection, and he manifested the power of resurrection in his son. God's answer to crucifixion was resurrection. You see, death is the great separator. That's the reason we grieve when we lose someone. We are separated from them. Resurrection overpowers the separation of death, and resurrection is the great uniter. You crucified him, you separated him from us, but God raised him, and when God raised him, he united Jesus to us and us to Jesus. Then notice what he says, verse 11. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected. Remember they were in the hall of hewed stone. In a hall surrounded by stone hewed out and built that hall. And as they sat there surrounded in all that mass of stone, Peter looks at them and he said, you guys, you rejected him. You're the builders of the faith of Israel and you rejected him. You rejected him as being the stone that your faith would be built of. Imagine going to a construction site. The builder goes out and he sees a large stone and he looks the stone over and he decides, oh, this stone's not good enough for me. It doesn't meet my specifications. I don't want it. So he takes a stone and just throws it away. You ever gone to a work site and you see a lot of stone or brick thrown over on the side and rejected? That's what they had done with Jesus. But he says, you took that stone that you rejected, and that stone has become the cornerstone. Now, in the temple compound in Jerusalem, the cornerstone could be in one of two places or potentially in both. First of all, the cornerstones were huge stones. These were not nice little blocks like we tend to use in buildings. If you walk outside this building and look at the side of it, you'll see a cornerstone, not much bigger than the width of this uh, podium, but the cornerstone in the temple was a long straight block that ran up the corner of the building. It measured 38 feet in length and was 15 feet wide. That's no little stone. So when he uses the term cornerstone, that's what they're thinking of, a 38 foot long stone that's 15 feet wide. Now the cornerstone in the buildings of those days could be placed in one of two locations. Sometimes they were placed right over the entrance to the building. 
so that when you walked into the building and you looked up, what you saw was this massive stone. Other times they were used as where we would tend to think of them today in the foundation of the building. Again, you're talking massive stones and the building rested on the stone. Now, what is he saying here? When he says that Jesus is the cornerstone, he's saying when it comes to your faith, when it comes to a person's walk with the Lord, when it comes to what Jesus is building in his church, when you look up, what you see is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the focal point. He's what everything is resting on. He's the one that we are looking up to. He is the one that our eyes are gazing upon. He's the cornerstone. You guys rejected him, but the one you rejected, God has taken and placed squarely in front of everybody. In fact, what you see in this man in his healing is God's way of saying, when you look at this man, you see Jesus. You see the touch of Jesus. You see the power of Jesus. You see the love of Jesus. You see the glory of Jesus. You see the manifestation of the active, resurrected power of Jesus Christ in the healing of this man. You've got to see Jesus when you look at him. But the second thing he's saying here is he's the cornerstone. Everything's built on him. The faith is built on him. The church is built on him. Everything that is being constructed in this new faith that's coming about called Christianity that you guys are having such trouble with is based and built on the person of Jesus Christ. Folks, I can't stress that enough. Everything we say, everything we teach, everything we preach, everything we put out as His church has got to be based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If it's not based on Jesus, then it's going to collapse. But if it's based on Jesus, then it's going to stand forever. It's got to be based on Jesus. That's why we teach Him. That's why we preach Him. That's why we cannot stop talking about Him. And when Jesus shows up and does something, He and He alone has got to get the glory for it. We live in a day and age, in my opinion, in evangelical churches where we get so caught up in personalities. And when preachers come to town and a church calls a new pastor so often, how good is he? How great can he preach? Oh man, let's all flock over here and hear what this guy's got to say and who he is. That's building a church around a personality. You see, what we ought to be doing is saying, is Jesus being lifted up? Is Jesus being glorified? Is the attention being put on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what our calling is. Not built on a human being. Human beings are all flesh. We're all going to disappear off the face of this earth someday. And no human being can save you. But Jesus is the focal point. Now, verse 12, he says that there is salvation. Notice where? In no other name. Boy, that's exclusive, very exclusive. No other name but Jesus. The Spirit of God empowers Peter. And Peter says, there is no other name by which a person can be saved. There's no other authority by which a person can know God other than Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit you have to speak very unpopular truth. And this is unpopular truth. It was unpopular then, but folks, it's equally unpopular today. Why is it exclusively Jesus? He says there's no other name. 
Because Jesus Christ and Jesus alone took our sin in His death on the cross. On Easter Sunday morning, there was only one Savior who walked out of that tomb, and His name was Jesus. There was not a row of religious figures who walked out of the tomb that morning. In fact, if you go around the world and you visit the graves of various religious figures and leaders of different religions through the centuries, they will say, this is the grave of so-and-so, and and this is where so-and-so was buried, and they'll show you those graves. And people venerate where those people are buried, but they do a strange thing when you go to Jerusalem and they take you to Jesus' grave. They don't say, this is where he's buried. They say, this is where he used to be. Come on in, walk around, take a look at it. But it's empty, and it's been empty for 2,000 years. That's the reason he and he alone is the one by which we are saved. And folks, I know it's popular to say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, it's just as long as you're sincere in getting there and believing it. But folks, we don't have a right to take the Word of God and manipulate it any way we want in order to be popular. The only right we have is to take what Scripture already says and accurately say what it says. And Peter says here that Jesus alone, His name alone is the way of salvation. Notice verse 12, by which we must be saved. Now what is He saving us from? Every time you see the word save or salvation in Scripture it means deliverance. What's He delivering us from? He's delivering us from a lot. First of all, in terms of eternity, He delivers us from hell because He took it for us. Secondly, He delivers us from our sin from our guilt. He delivers us from ourselves. Because often the greatest deliverance we need is from us and what we do. And He delivers us from what's inside of us right now that haunts us. Jesus hasn't just come to be the deliverer for eternity. He's come to be the deliverer right now. Notice verse 13, how the Spirit of God empowers them with boldness. They listened to what Peter says. It says, now they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized that they were ordinary guys. Basically what it means is they were not professionals. They had had no formal theological education. And why was that, verse 8? Because Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus had told His disciples, Matthew 10, 20, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what to say. And this is what basically happened. Peter walks before that Sanhedrin. He stands there with those 71 men staring him in the face. He's got Annas and his family staring him in the face. You could imagine what his blood pressure probably was. He knows those same guys had condemned Jesus to death 40 days before. Boy, the temptation to feel rejection, intimidation, must have been overwhelming. But as Peter stands there, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fills him, and Peter has courage. 
He has courage that he cannot explain. And he looks at those men and he begins to deliver what I just related to you. How does he do it? Because the Spirit of God is teaching him how to do it. The Spirit of the Lord is putting the words in his mouth. The Spirit of God is even more putting the iron in his soul to say what he's saying. You see, the biggest struggle that most of us have in living for Jesus is not saying the right thing. It's, that we, it's the fear we struggle with. What are people going to say about me? How's this going to impact my job? What friends will I lose? If I stand for Jesus, if I walk with Jesus, if I serve Jesus, if I identify with Jesus, what are people going to say? And that's where we got to have a holy boldness that can only come from the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, give me that boldness to stand for you. Lord, give me that boldness to speak for you. Give me that boldness to realize that my security is in Jesus. My security is not in my ability to try to manipulate the relationships and the aspects of my life. My security is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The power of the Holy Spirit had been manifested in them. The man was healed. Thousands of people were saved on that day. And then they stood in front of that Sanhedrin and spoke those words. And next time you are on the line for Jesus, just say, Lord, would you give me the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you release out of me and in me the power of your Holy Spirit? And then just wait and watch and see what God does. Now notice what they say about these guys in verse 13. It says that they're uneducated guys. That doesn't mean that they were a bunch of dummies. It means that when Peter began to speak, those Sanhedrin members began to look at each other and say, I don't remember seeing Peter in any of our rabbinical schools. I don't remember the graduations we attended that Peter ever came across the stage and he was handed a diploma or given a degree. This guy didn't get the professional theological training that the rest of us have. But he's going toe-to-toe with us In fact, not only is he going toe-to-toe with us, but not only can he articulate what he believes in a clear, concise, powerful way, but he's got power over here to show for it. This lame man is healed. We got all this training, but we don't have any power. And then notice what it says. Last sentence there, verse 13. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Why? Because they saw the power of the Holy Spirit in them and through them and all around them. Well, folks, God is going to call you and God is going to place you if you seriously follow Him into some situations and circumstances that are going to totally overwhelm you. That you're not going to know what to say and how to say it. You don't know where the provision is going to come from. You don't have a clue as to how you're going to get through it and how God's going to come through. You're just going to be totally overwhelmed. In fact, being overwhelmed is evidence of a call from God. Being at the end of your rope is it evidence that God's got you now on His rope? 
And whatever the circumstance has to be, God's going to call you periodically to places and circumstances and situations that are totally beyond you. And when those times come, and they are going to come, what we have a tendency to do is look inside ourselves and say, I can't do it, and I am so inadequate, and I'm not up to the task, and on and on and on go. Well, we just talk ourselves out of the call of God, out of the work of God, and out of the leadership of God. Instead, what we ought to do is say, you know something? This situation, this call, this task, what God has for me is blowing me away. It's beyond me. I don't see how I can do it. But you know something? God can empower me to do it. And he's placed me here because he's going to empower me to do it. And I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit in this situation so that I will begin to work and to travel in what God can do in me, through me, and around me, not what I'm capable of because what God calls you to, he calls you into his capacity and his capability beyond our capacity, our capability. And too many of us miss what God's got for us because we are stopping at the place of what we say we're capable of. Now, the Lord does the same thing with churches. Church will be moving along and things are going great. And then God steps up to that church and he says, you like how things are going? Yes, Lord, we're enjoying it. You enjoy the blessings I've given you? We're so comfortable in your blessings. And God smiles and says, I'm so glad you're comfortable in my blessings. But it's time for comfort to end. Because I'm going to call you out here to do some things for me that you haven't done before. I'm going to call you to a place of service that you haven't been yet. I'm going to call you to some places of service that you're going to wonder how in the world is God going to make this happen. We don't see how the provisions are going to be there. And that's where as His people we have to step up and step out and say at this point in this place we're believing the Lord and we're going to ask to walk in an outpouring of the Spirit's work and the Spirit's power that we have not known. Now, I want you to see what those folks in Jerusalem said. The Sanhedrin sits back and says, these folks have been with Jesus. They haven't been with their fear. They haven't been with their intimidation. They have been with Jesus. And folks, when we step out and we start serving the Lord and doing things in His name under His leadership to His glory that can only be done in His power, people are going to step back and say, they have been with Jesus. May I submit to you that we live in a world today, in a state today, in a community today of folks who are yearning to see some folks that they can honestly say, those people have been with Jesus. For the years that I've been a pastor, periodically I've had people say to me, well, I don't want to go to church, just a bunch of hypocrites. And sometimes I haven't been able to argue with them. But folks, when we walk with Him and we answer His call, what people will begin to say is those folks have been with Jesus because they act like Him and they think like Him and they talk like Him and His power and love are being manifested through them. Now, how do we get there? I want to offer you a way for us to get there. This coming Wednesday is the beginning of a 40-day period of time leading up to Easter that's called Lent. 
Now, I know we Baptists tend to break out in hives when we hear the word Lent, okay? Because if we say, that's not in our tradition, we don't do Lent. I used to think when I was a kid and heard it that it meant stuff that you got out of the dryer uh, or pulled out of your pocket and so forth. I thought it was strange that people at church were mesmerized with puffy stuff that you got out of a dryer. But they seem to be mesmerized with a lot of strange stuff, so that didn't too much surprise me. The whole concept behind Lent is a 40-day period of time to prepare ourselves to observe the crucifixion of Jesus and to celebrate His resurrection. Now, that's a good biblical concept. Just getting prepared to experience Him. If you'll take your bulletins, I'd like for you to look at the front of your bulletins. I'm asking you to do several things for the next 40 days. First of all, you will notice that each week, starting this week, we've got a passage of Scripture that we're going to ask you to meditate on. Just read it each day, not long, and just each day say, Lord, what are you saying to me through this passage of Scripture? God, what are you saying to our family and our church family through this passage of Scripture? And then a commitment. Over the next 40 days, I will daily spend time alone with Jesus. Over the next 40 days, I will ask the Lord to show me somebody to encourage. And a person with whom I would like to share Jesus with over the next 40 days. As a church... I'm asking us to say, Lord, over these next 40 days, as we prepare to observe your crucifixion, remember your crucifixion, celebrate your resurrection, that, God, we're going to meditate on your word. We're going to seek to encourage at least one person and seek to ask you to give us at least one person that we can share what Jesus means to us. Over the next 40 days, you'll see in your bulletin, we will encourage you in that journey by sharing with other churches in Rocky Mount and hosting here as well as the other churches Wednesday noonday services. And that list of services is in your bulletin and the locations week by week. On Good Friday, we will gather in this room to share the Lord's Supper and to reflect on His death for us. And of course, on Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate His resurrection. Let's in these next 40 days... And for some reason, in the Word of God, God loves to use 40-day periods of time. Concentrate individually and as a church at seeking the Lord and asking for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this 40-day experience because we believe you're calling us to it. God, show us the sin we need to repent of. Show us a deeper experience of your love. Lord, connect us more to your body, the church. Lord, show us folks to encourage and to share Christ with. God, teach us from your word. And Father, when we arrive at Easter Sunday, instead of just going through 
the motions of Easter. We ask that we would get there, Lord, this year with a deeper, closer experience of You and, Lord, an empowerment of Your Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of our church. And we thank You, Jesus. You're ready. You're just waiting on us to be ready. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, in just a moment, we're going to sing and ask God to have His way in our lives. And if you're here today and you need to ask Jesus to be your Savior, to be your Lord, and choose to walk with Him and follow Him, I want to invite you as we sing to walk the aisle of this church and to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to know Him. I want to walk with Him. I want to serve Him. If you're here and you feel that God is calling you and leading you to become part of our church family, then I invite you to come. If you need to come and pray, feel free. And if God has been working in your mind and in your heart and you've sensed Him calling you into some type of ministry, may not even be sure of what it is, but you need to surrender to that call, then I invite you to come. In these moments now, may we respond to Him however we need to. Let's stand together now. Let's sing and come if you will.